American Pulps presents Under the Knife, the story of a wannabe actress turned Nazi hunter. Part 2 For what must have been months, Dr. Thedrick and Barbara would change Katie's makeup, hair, and outfits with the same regularity as they had with her gauze. Katie was so drugged up she couldn't move. She sat, immobile, in a vegetative state, drooling from the corner of her mouth. Burly orderlies would change Katie's bed and move her during her sponge baths. All of the men had a similar build and dull-eyed look about them. Katie flashed back to when she had wanted very badly to play the ingenue in a science fiction film last year. The villains in that film looked a lot like these men. Their foreheads jutted out over their vacant, deep-set eyes. All of them had large jaws and chins that extended out past the nose. Their bodies were like upside-down triangles with broad shoulders and trim waists. Barbara would order the men around like a drill sergeant. Interestingly enough, even though they could break the woman like dry kindling, the men never seemed to react in any human way to Barbara's rudeness. They simply responded to the instructions without any emotion. Katie remained bound to the bed and pumped full of paralytics. She could feel that her face had fully healed from the surgery. Dr. Thedrick was now butchering her mind to match the face he had created. Any sense of time and space was scrambled while Dr. Thedrick put Katie through a mental reprogramming process. Katie received an IV in each arm, and a symphonic harmony of psychoactive drugs coursed through her body. She didn't know this, but she was receiving massive doses of LSD, which were playing havoc on her concept of reality. In the windowless, mirrorless room, Katie was forced to exclusively watch a series of homemade films and listen to a series of audio recordings. The films were home movies of Sophie. The audio loops were recordings of Sophie speaking. She would utter phrases in a hypnotic rhythm that matched Katie's heartbeat. 24 hours a day, the voice soaked into Katie's head. My name is Sophie Thedrick. I love many things in this life. I love gardening, a good caviar, a fine waltz, but most of all, I love to love and serve my husband. Katie bristled at the crass nature of these tapes. At first, she found them detestable, laughable, really. But the human mind is a dynamic, malleable thing, and soon those films and recordings infiltrated her thinking. The images, combined with the psychoactive drugs and isolation, made her soon regard those thoughts as her own. Shadows and light projected on the wall became surrogate memories. It was as if her personality had been broken into a mosaic, and she was so close to the individual pieces she lacked the necessary perspective to see the full shape of its design. In addition to scrambling Katie's mind with medication, Dr. Thedrick administered an aggressive series of electric shocks that were designed to further erase her old self. Katie was still under heavy muscle-paralyzing drugs. Screams of protest went unheard and definitely unanswered. After Dr. Thedrick was satisfied with the first stage of processing, he lowered the dosage on Katie's paralytics. 
Katie was able to form words through numb, stiffly flapping lips. Where am I? Why are you keeping me here? The doctor seemed genuinely shocked and hurt by the question. He looked deep into her eyes. My dear, how can you not know? This is your home. I am your husband. Katie's resolve strengthened. No, I'm not. No, you aren't. You have a wife. I've seen her. Dr. Thedrick shook his head, gravely serious this time. There are no other women, darling. You are my wife. There has only ever been you, my Sophie. You had another one of your incidents, but fear not. Mother and I are here for you. Dr. Thedrick was unfazed by this setback in his process. He dutifully connected an IV to each of her arms. He would use one IV to place her into a deep, coma-like sleep for hours or days at a time. And then he would use the other to pump her full of amphetamines. She would emerge from her sleep, babbling uncontrollably. She would either repeat the phrases she learned from her reprogramming, or protest her captivity. Katie's wrong answers were met with an electric shock. Her correct answers were met with a high dose of MDMA. The pattern was simple. Incorrect answers brought intolerable pain, while correct answers brought indescribable joy. Dr. Thedrick was pleased. She was steadily internalizing all of her lessons. The doctor regularly gave himself a wide variety of injections to remain strong and youthful. He was preserved by his own advances in medical human perfection. Although he was old, he looked vital and formidable. He was like the vintage Rolls-Royce in his driveway and the wine in his cellar. He was perfectly preserved, and only his old-fashioned manners would give him away. Katie may have been forgetting who she was, but she knew one thing for sure. She was a prisoner, and that was something she needed to change. Thus created the first of Katie's plans to escape. Despite no longer being paralyzed by her medication, she would remain extremely still during the day. At night, she would use her stored energy to pull against her leather straps. She would perspire, and she could feel her starved hand slipping from under the strap. Katie spent her nights working at the strap and thinking about reclaiming the life she once despised. She had gone so long without seeing her reflection, she even wondered if the image of Sophie she had seen in the doctor's glasses was a hallucination. Of course it was. That was a reality far too horrifying to entertain. Katie noticed that Dr. Thedrick was always striving for Barbara's acceptance, which was strange since he was her boss. Barbara also went out of her way to treat Dr. Thedrick like a little boy. The relationship between Dr. Thedrick and Barbara made sense one evening when she overheard them arguing. He threw his hands up in aggravation and yelled, You must listen to me, mother! Barbara responded with, Yes, I am your mother, 
and you will listen to me. It was late night on Hollywood Boulevard. Dr. Thedrick had been staring at the streetwalkers for hours. He was never leering at them. He was studying them. The shadows from the streetlights and their garish makeup distorted their faces, but the doctor was an expert, and he zeroed in on the right girl. He was a master of finding potential in a patient, and she had it. This was the one. When Ginger slid into the Rolls-Royce, Dr. Thedrick smiled and stabbed her with a needle, (gasps) freezing her muscles as he had done to so many women before. Her face contorted with fear, but it was already too late. She was paralyzed and at the doctor's mercy. Dr. Thedrick took her back to his operating room, poured a brandy, put on a Wagner opera, and prepared another living canvas. That night, Barbara was feeding Katie soup. Katie pretended to choke on a mouthful and spit it up onto her strap. The soup lubricated her hand just enough so that she was able to slide it through. One arm finally free, Katie brought the steel IV stand down on Barbara's head, sending her to the ground. Katie unbuckled the straps and sprinted out the door. Barbara squawked at the security guards. In an instant, Katie had a squad of burly servants chasing her. Katie escaped through a second-story window and jumped into the swimming pool. She emerged covered in sopping wet clothing from another era. Cold, weak, and wet, Katie ran down Mulholland Drive in the middle of the night, screaming for help. A car approached from behind her. At first, she hid, assuming it was Dr. Thedrick's men. She trembled with relief when she saw that it was, in fact, a police car. Katie flagged down the officers. She told them that she is escaping a crazy doctor's house where she was kept prisoner. This is the first time Katie had fully used her voice, and she could tell that Dr. Thedrick had done something to her vocal cords. Her voice was now huskier, more sultry. Despite their narrow eyes and unforgiving-looking jawlines, they were very sweet and they told her not to worry. She sure was lucky that they had found her, and not someone who would make trouble. The cops pulled up to the doctor's house, and Katie started to scream. That's the maniac's house! What are you doing? Get me out of here! I want to go home! Katie struggled to get out of the car, but the back seat of the cruiser had no door handles. You are home, ma'am, said one of the cops, who then opened the back door and pulled Katie out of the car. It took both of them to walk her to the front door, holding onto each arm to keep her from bolting down Benedict Canyon Drive. Their voices were kind, but their grip was firm. Dr. Thedrick answered the door in his burgundy smoking jacket with paisley pattern. He expertly played the role of distressed husband. After all, Sophie had another one of her episodes, and he had been worried sick. The cops assured Dr. Thedrick that they would keep this quiet, like all the other times. They sure looked forward to the next party at the doctor's house. As the police cruiser turned down the driveway, Katie broke free of the doctor's grip and fled into the grounds of the vast estate. Desperate for a place to hide, she stumbled into a greenhouse and saw her reflection for the first truly undeniable time. 
Her throat squeezed shut with a horror that she had never previously had any reason to imagine. Her face truly was Sophie's. The doctor had crafted his true love out of a stranger and removed everything that the world would have recognized as Katie. The night closed in around her, and there was only a spiral of fear and disgust. She stumbled through the dark and came face to face with a cage full of miniature, shrieking starlets. Before the liquid flame of dread could fill her completely, a hand covered her mouth and a needle pierced her back. Dr. Thedrick had overtaken her and injected her with a massive sedative. Strangely enough, one of her final thoughts was, where is the doctor's real wife? With Katie subdued, Dr. Thedrick went back to his study, where Ginger was laid across the table, unconscious. Next to her were over a dozen meticulously rendered sketches of Katie from every angle, head to toe. New York City. A handsome man in his 50s bought a bouquet of roses. He was arm in arm with a younger woman, presumably his new wife. This man was making a fresh start. Simon Bauer stepped out of the running car and whispered, Guten Tag, in the handsome man's ear. The man turned. Simon said, Dieter Strauss. The man tried not to react to the name. He tried to hide his flash of recognition, but Simon noticed. Simon raised a revolver and fired two shots into Dieter's face. As the woman screamed and looked at her dead husband, Simon dropped a dossier on the corpse. The dossier had a photo of Dieter and a thorough record of his time as a high-ranking Nazi officer. Simon walked calmly back to his car. He put it in gear and took a drag from the lit cigarette he left in the ashtray. He wasn't planning on being out of the car long. Simon entered a Times Square movie theater and met with Yael, his financier. Dieter's death was already buzzing around town. It made the front pages of the evening papers. Yael wanted to discuss their next target. Who Simon had in mind for the chopping block. That one was personal. But we'd be willing to back you for other targets. Whatever you need. Money, supplies, weapons, anything. I don't need anything but a cocktail and a good night's sleep. We'll be in touch, said a grateful Yael. When she left, Simon grabbed a flask of vodka out of his coat pocket and took a pull. He put his hat down over his eyes and went to sleep. Dieter had overseen the murder of Yael's family when she was away in Swiss boarding school. She was typical of his clients. The first targets were often personal vendettas, but hunting down escaped Nazis was addictive. Simon didn't use a dime of the money for anything but the mission. He lived an austere life. He didn't even have an apartment. He stayed mobile so that he could pounce on a lead at a moment's notice. Nazi hunting had taken him all over the world. It was his life's work. And when he slept, he found places like this movie theater. He didn't want it any other way. Back in Hollywood, Katie was going through the final round of her processing. 
She had regained consciousness in a new room. The walls, the ceiling, and the floor were completely mirrored. No matter where she looked, she saw her reflection. Or rather, she saw Sophie's reflection. Katie had tried to smash the mirrors, but they were made of polished steel. For 24 hours a day, she could only look at herself. There was nothing else to do. Every day, the memory of what she used to look like faded a little more. Dr. Thedrick completed this procedure and became convinced that Sophie was ready to explore the house on her own. He didn't give her this incremental freedom out of compassion. This was the next step in her reprogramming. Barbara didn't think Sophie was ready, but Dr. Thedrick was adamant. My wife must become reacquainted with her home so she can begin to heal herself. Dr. Thedrick was in a hurry, and it was clouding his judgment. The Academy Awards were happening in a few short weeks. Many of the predicted winners were his clients. He had to attend, and he didn't dream of attending without his wife. It would be unseemly. Each day, while Dr. Thedrick was at work, Katie wandered through the house. She was alone, but Barbara was always watching. Katie's, Sophie's, appearance perfectly matched the photos and paintings that loomed in every room. She recognized each of the rooms from the films she was forced to watch. But she understood a lot of the images from those films now as her own memories. She developed an insatiable desire to explore the rest of the estate. She wanted to find more memories, wanted to make more sense out of them. One night, after hours of staring at her, Sophie's, reflection, she had a dream. The dream must have been Katie's ravaged psyche making one last attempt to save itself. Because Katie, the old, real Katie, appeared to her and told her to escape the house before she became a permanent prisoner of her own mind. She told Katie to observe every object in the house and concentrate on the fact that she, Katie Ulrich, and nobody else was looking at that object. Katie's second escape attempt was nothing more than a split-second exploitation of an opportunity. She made a Molotov cocktail out of a bottle of rubbing alcohol in a ripped section of her dress and tossed it out the window at the doctor's Rolls-Royce. Everyone, including Barbara, ran outside. The servants quickly put the fire out. Katie used that opportunity to lock herself in the doctor's study and call her family. The number to her parents was disconnected, so she called Fred, her ex-fiancé. Fred was very curt. He informed her that Katie had been dead for two years. Katie froze in horror. Had she really been inside that house for two years? Katie pleaded with Fred. I'm alive! I need you to come get me! Take me home! I want to go home! The police won't even help me! He's keeping me prisoner, Fred! But Katie's, Sophie's, voice betrayed her. She didn't sound anything like the girl Fred grew up with. Fred admonished the voice on the other end of the line. You reporters are awfully low. I told you a hundred times I don't have any comment. Katie's parents died in their sleep after having to bury their child. The grief is probably what killed them. Katie heard footsteps coming up the stairs. She was out of time. How can you be so sure that Katie is dead when you never saw her body? She asked. Fred sighed a pained laugh. Look, we identified the body. 
we had an open casket funeral. She must have fallen asleep while driving back to Ohio and she hit a tree. She was killed instantly. Now please, never call here again. Katie scrambled out of the study and retreated into the bowels of the mansion. She was desperate for a way to escape. She came upon a locked door and used an oxygen tank to break the lock. What she found was not a way out of the house, but the sordid core of the doctor's operations. She found herself in a room full of dead women. They were preserved in glass tanks at various stages of surgery and recovery. Each of them bore an uncanny resemblance to either Sophie or Barbara. Every corpse had a large binder filled with the details of their lives before surgery, the surgical procedures performed, and a meticulous account of what went wrong with each experiment. The files also detailed ultimately why Dr. Thedrick had to terminate each one. In the back, Katie then came upon the woman that she had seen as Sophie at the party she worked. The woman was dead. Half her face had been dissected and analyzed to study long-term healing and scarring. The women stared out from formaldehyde tombs, each seeming to plead with Katie for retribution. Katie saw that the doctor's notes not only reflected medical and aesthetic missteps, but mental ones as well. A report summary read, The primary challenge has been with insubordination from the test subjects. Despite extended efforts in cognitive process revision, we have been unable to truly assimilate them to their rightful worldviews. Katie's mind crackled with a desire to flee, but her body kept still. Her body had taken over, knowing on a primal level what it must do to ensure her survival as an organism. Katie realized that there was only one way to avoid the same fate as the rest of these women. She would have to become Sophie, completely. She would pull off the performance of her lifetime, bide her time, and plot her return to the world. <sighs> Katie resolved to be exactly what the doctor wanted, and embraced her role with gusto that very night. Katie, Sophie, gave the servants the night off. She cooked dinner for Dr. Thedrick and set the table. She had a drink fixed for him when he got home. She was wearing a quintessential Sophie outfit, a snow-white-looking ensemble. Katie really used everything she had learned from those films. Barbara looked on, impressed. Katie greeted her as mother, and Barbara said how happy she was to see Sophie feeling more like herself. But underneath the kind words, Katie could see something else playing out in Barbara's eyes. It was a feeling she was intimately familiar with, both as a perpetrator and a victim. Barbara was jealous. Katie stayed in character 24 hours a day, and would even dream as Sophie. The only thing that kept her tethered to her former identity was the rage she felt when remembering the look in all of those preserved cadavers' eyes. After preparing dinner one night, Katie was able to stash a steak knife in her stockings. That night, after the doctor fell asleep, she pulled the knife from under the bed and reached back to plunge the blade into his throat. But rage is not a sober advisor, and before stabbing the doctor, she realized something very obvious. She couldn't kill him. 
yet. She needed him to change her face back to the way it was. In the meantime, she saw no choice but to continue on as his fantasy. Join us next time for Under the Knife, Part 3, when Katie finds out just who the doctor actually turned her into. We hope you have enjoyed this American Pulps production, and we truly appreciate you listening. The best way to support us is to go wherever you find podcasts and leave a five-star review. To get an illustrated book version of today's episode, head over to AmericanPulps.com and join our mailing list. It's free. Find us on social media at American Pulps. If you want to find out right away how our wannabe actress turns into the world's most elite Nazi hunter, you can purchase the full Under the Knife ebook at Amazon.com for $1.99. Today's episode was written and produced by John Borges and Matt Pagorges and read by John Borges. It was recorded at Mr. Bad Example Studios in Los Angeles, California, with original music by the rich and powerful. American Pulps thanks you again for visiting this melting pot of mayhem, and we look forward to bringing you more trash fiction for classy people. <laughs>